Welcome back to San Francisco Ballet's To The Point podcast. I'm Jenny Scholick, the Associate Director of Audience Engagement at San Francisco Ballet. And as usual, I'm your host for To The Point, a podcast that tells you all about San Francisco Ballet's season and performances. Today's topic is Program 6, Space Between. I know I'm supposed to be impartial here, but I'll confess to being super excited about this program. Space Between features work by three of the hottest choreographers working today, Justin Peck, Liam Scarlett, and Arthur Pita. Arthur, the oldest of the bunch, is in his mid-40s. The other two are in their early 30s. These guys are making work for the biggest ballet companies in the world. Think the Royal Ballet, New York City Ballet, Paris Opera Ballet, and in case you couldn't guess, San Francisco Ballet. But they're also pushing ballet in new directions by working on Broadway, on film, and by reconceptualizing what it means to tell stories through movement. These three ballets, Justin's Rodeo, Liam's New Ballet, and Arthur's Bjork Ballet, are all really different from one another, from music to movement, and they each twist ballet in a new direction. In this episode, we'll chat a bit about each of these three choreographers, give you some hints of what to look for, and even hear a bit from Arthur himself. Sound fun? Then let's get to the point. The first ballet on our program is from a familiar artist to San Francisco audiences, Justin Peck, whose ballet Hurry Up, We're Dreaming, you may have seen as part of Program 2, Kaleidoscope. That evening curated three choreographers associated with New York City Ballet into a program that showed the range of the New York City style, starting with its father, George Balanchine, and moving through Benjamin Millipier's romanticism into Peck's youthful contemporaneity. In this program, Justin's work isn't put into conversation with other New York City ballet artists, but instead with other young choreographers who are each putting their own spin on what ballet today might be. In this program, Justin's work isn't put into conversation with other New York City ballet artists, but instead with other young choreographers who are each putting their own spin on what ballet might be today. This particular work, Rodeo, for dance episodes, plays with ballet history, making use of Aaron Copland's iconic score for Rodeo, note the accent, originally written for choreographer Agnes DeMille at the Ballet Russe in 1942. And it's also playing with ballet conventions, updating them for modern audiences. Made for 15 men and one woman, Rodeo premiered in 2015 at New York City Ballet. And we first danced it last year and have since performed it a few times, um, including at Stern Grove last summer. But to be fair, this isn't exactly the same Copeland score that DeMille used. Rather, it's a symphonic version of that score called Four Dance Episodes from Rodeo that was put together by Copeland the year after the ballet's premiere. It was played by the Boston Pops and was an instant hit. This is actually the version that you'll hear symphonies play and the version that we use for this ballet. The music is super recognizable, especially the hoedown section. It's been used pretty much any time an artist wants to hitch over the head with something American, like in the opening ceremonies of the 2002 Salt Lake Winter Games. It was also in the 1990s Beef It's What's for Dinner campaign, beaming the tune into people's brains around the country. Interestingly, this iconic tune wasn't originally Copeland's. He actually borrowed it from Kentucky fiddler William Bill Hamilton Stepp's performance of Bonaparte's Retreat, which was recorded in 1937 by Alan and Elizabeth Lomax and transcribed by Ruth Crawford Seeger. When Copeland went to write Rodeo, he incorporated this piece of Irish-American folk music almost note for note into its score. In terms of what to look for, 
Well, last year on this very same podcast, I called it ESPN meets SFB. And I'll stick by that, more or less. It's athletic and kinetic, full of a kind of American openness that seems inspired by the original Rodeo's, see there I go, the original Rodeo's tale of life on the American plains. And the ballet's gender dynamics are also worth commenting upon. Most ballets use a corps de ballet of women. This one has 15 men dancing. That means that men partner one another, a recent trend in, the art, in an art form that often seems bound by a gender binary. And they, the men interact with each other in ways that imply competition and conflict, but also sensitivity, vulnerability, and camaraderie. And this makes the woman's role in the ballet kind of murky. What's she doing here? And why is she a part of this ballet? Those kinds of questions turn ballet's traditional emphasis on women on its head. So then, moving from American athleticism to British romanticism, the second ballet on Space Between is choreographer Liam Scarlett's brand new ballet made for San Francisco Ballet. Liam may be young, but he, like Justin, has had enough opportunities to last a lifetime, making work on companies as wide-ranging as the Royal Ballet, where he's artist-in-residence, Queensland Ballet, where he's artistic associate, Miami City Ballet, New York City Ballet, Norwegian National Ballet, American Ballet Theater, and, of course, San Francisco Ballet. For us, he's made Hummingbird, which will be going on tour to London this summer, Fearful Symmetries, and Frankenstein, which we produced together with the Royal Ballet and was one of our big hits last year. Justin and Liam are an interesting pairing on this program, because although they are very different choreographers, their careers have in some ways occurred in parallel. Both are in their early 30s. Both got their start choreographing in 2008, Liam, when Monica Mason, then director of the Royal, gave the 24-year-old his first big break. Both spent many years in the court of ballet, watching their colleagues dancing. But while Justin is a true product of New York City Ballet, coming up through their school and company, Liam is a true product of the Royal Ballet. He entered the lower school at White Lodge when he was eight, before graduating to the upper school and finally to the company in 2005. And this difference shows in their work. Liam, for one, seems much more interested in telling stories than does Justin, and simultaneously less interested in using the kind of new music that Justin's been experimenting with of late. Now, don't get me wrong, Liam has commissioned scores from composers like Lowell Lieberman, but he's not so much working with the M83s and Sufjan Stevenses of the world. Instead, he's making works to Rachmaninoff, to Polonk, and Glass, and making new versions of ballets like The Age of Anxiety, Firebird, and Midsummer Night's Dream, and most recently, and most high-profile, Swan Lake for the Royal Ballet. Liam's new ballet here isn't a story ballet, but it is his fifth ballet to the music of Sergei Rachmaninoff. This time, he's taken Isle of the Dead as his inspiration, a piece that Rachmaninoff wrote in 1908, inspired by a painting by Arnold Berklin, which had seen a copy of in Paris in 1907. But the copy had seen, that Rachmaninoff had seen, was in black and white. And ironically, Rachmaninoff would later say that if he'd seen it in color, he never would have composed this score. How's that for art in the age of mechanical reproduction? And if anyone laughed at that Walter Benjamin joke out there, contact me. I think I owe you a drink at the Opera House. Anyway, moving on. This ballet takes its inspiration more so from the music than from the painting, but it's worth giving you a sense of this piece of art. 
As I said before, Rachmaninoff saw a reproduction of the work, and that wasn't uncommon. Nabokov joked that a print could be found in every Berlin home in the period. And it rather exemplifies symbolist aesthetics, showing a rocky island from across an expanse of water. A small rowboat holding an oarsman and a standing figure clad in white approaches the island. Behind the figure is an object, often understood as a coffin. Although Berkland didn't explain the painting in his lifetime, many have interpreted the painting as depicting Karen transporting a soul across the river Styx. The music takes on some of these ideas, suggesting the sound of oars or waves and pulling from Gregorian chanting, the mass for the dead to be specific. Um, So it creates this tone poem out of these ideas about water and a funeral mass. And Liam's ballet carries on these themes. Watch for a recurring movement where the dancers take a low arabesque and sweep their arm in a circle, like waves or like oars. And track the six principal dancers. How do their relationships evolve or transform over the course of the ballet? How do they emerge out of the group, in particular the first soloist who you'll see, and who might they be to one another? The final ballet on the program was created for last year's Unbound Festival, and I would say it was probably the most unbound of the bunch. Bjork Ballet by Arthur Pita is a spectacle and a half, featuring music by none other than Bjork herself. So a bit about Arthur first and a bit of context. All three ballets in space between could be termed contemporary ballet, a concept that's as much talked about and as little understood as blockchain or artificial intelligence. But they're all three very different types of contemporary ballet. In general, choreographers who make what we call contemporary ballet, broadly defined, emerge in one of two ways. The first is out of ballet companies. These choreographers train in and work with ballet companies during their dance careers, and as they move into choreography, they begin to integrate modern and postmodern dance techniques into their work, pushing and distorting ballet technique in new ways. That's the Justin Peck-Liam Scarlet path. The second way to become a contemporary ballet choreographer is actually to be a contemporary dance choreographer, someone not exclusively trained in ballet technique, but who's managed to cross over into the ballet sphere, like Twyla Tharp or Mark Morris did in the 1980s. It's this group to whom Arthur Pita belongs. Unlike Justin or Liam, Arthur never danced for a ballet company. In fact, his earliest training at home in South Africa was in Latin ballroom and competitive disco. He was even the under-14 world champion at disco. As a teenager, he encountered ballet at the Johannesburg Art, Ballet, Drama, and Music School, and he eventually traveled to Europe to further his training at the London Contemporary Dance School, where he received a bachelor's and master's degree, and then began freelancing, working both with small, fringy dance artists and with bigger companies like the English National Opera. In 1997, he saw Matthew Bourne's company perform Swan Lake, and his focus shifted. He auditioned for and joined the company that year before retiring from dancing in 2004. Arthur's choreographic work began in earnest at that point, working with theater and opera companies as well as becoming artist-in-residence at The Place in London. The Metamorphosis, created in 2011, starring the Royal Ballet's Edward Watson, brought him to much wider attention, especially for his narrative, surreal, and theatrical works. Since then, he's created work for Ballet Black, the Paris Opera Ballet, the Royal Ballet, and of course, San Francisco Ballet, while continuing to work in theater, opera, and film. The dancing robot in Ex Machina? That's Arthur. The choreography is Arthur. 
the dancing robot itself is not Arthur. So perhaps as a result, Arthur's process is a bit different from how many ballet choreographers work, making use of a lot of improvisation and play. I'll let him tell you about it. I love to play a lot in the room. I think mostly just because I want to get the dancers to loosen up and to feel like the room is safe for them to play in. And I always like to say that you can try anything in the room that you want to try because I think we sh- you should just open up all the options. So I absolutely love, um, I love doing a lot of improv, a lot of tasks, um, a lot of games, just to get things loosened up so you can sort of find the, the game of what you're trying to create in the work, whether it's like very dramatic or playful itself. There's something within that that just starts to release things. And then you start to see people really inventing stuff and um, getting rid of... Uh, a lot of information from the experience that they've had before because I find sometimes when you go into those processes there's they just kind of as dancers will just go for the information that they've just ha- had recently in their body and actually what you want to do what improvisation does is it kind of wipes the the slate clean and then they can find like a clean canvas to start you know playing with but that isn't to say that the ballet itself doesn't have structure or that the dancers could just do whatever they wanted The ballet is really driven by Bjork's music, as were the dancers' improvisations, which were largely based on Bjork's lyrics. One task that made a lasting impression on many of the dancers was based on postmodern choreographer Trisha Brown's process for her 1975 dance, Locus. Arthur gave each dancer a diagram of a cube with numerical points that correlated to the 26 letters of the alphabet, and, like Brown, had dancers imagine their bodies inside the cube. Instead of working off the biographical statement that formed the structure of Brown's dance, however, Arthur had the dancers spell out lyrics from Bjork's songs and incorporated that material throughout the ballet. Arthur was very clear that the music was the basis of this ballet, so I'm going to let him elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, the the music is definitely going to be the thing that's going to unleash them. Um, There's the lyrics, you know, Bjork's lyrics are so profound um, and if you look at uh, the, work, the lyrics of uh, Hyper Ballad, which is one of the songs that I've chosen, which I think is like probably one of the most uh, loved Bjork tracks, because it's a five-minute, five-minute, 13-second song, which just is such a journey. And, um, but the, those lyrics are all about letting go, and you know, it's about the, the a feeling of jumping off a cliff and the feeling of this huge, huge emotional charge, actually, and, and her voice. I mean, she sings with emotional charge. So ho- uh, hopefully that will, you know, that will infiltrate into the dancers. I mean, she also talks about, uh, which is very interesting with Bjork, I was watching an interview and she's speaking about... Um, that in Iceland, you know, they saw technology as, uh, at one point for her, that it was quite a bad thing, quite an evil thing, and it's what the modern world does. And, you know, because Iceland, they concentrate a lot on nature and what's around them and, you know, in, in the community, which is a beautiful thing. She's quite a rebel, as we know. She's, she, I mean, she was a punk at one point. And so she started becoming very interested in technology, and she said the most beautiful thing in an interview, and she said that... Um, Electricity existed way before we did, and we actually have electricity in our bodies. So why not use electricity and put it into music and mix it with with real instruments and you know taking a real orchestra or maybe a real sort of uh, uh, you know a guitar or something or a 
our harpsichord and mix that with, technolo with technological sounds. And I think there's something right, because the moment you put on the music, there is some kind of electrical charge that goes through the dancers' bodies that they can connect with. So it doesn't mean that you won't connect... Uh, that they'll, they'll, it, it won't bar any emotional... Um, feelings that you might get from a real instrument, you can still get a lot of emotion from those sounds and those those things that she records and puts through the laptop and pulls it out and pulls into her music. And I think that there's something which is essentially her sound, which is sort of nature and technology, and she kind of collides the two together. And I think you get an exciting, uh, an exciting world. And then once you start putting a dancer to start moving to that, interesting things start happening. So what did all of this result in? It's hard to describe, to be honest. It's structured by nine Bjork songs from across her canon and crafts a kind of episodic narrative. The costumes by Marco Marco of Katy Perry fame lend a touch of fantasy and sensuality and even humor as we follow four main characters, a masked fisherman, a pixie nymph-like creature in pink, and two women, each in the midst of complicated love affairs. I suppose that does make it six main characters, if you count the men in those love affairs, but somehow in this ballet, the women really seem to be the central figures. This spectacle, more Cirque du Soleil than Mariinsky Theater, doesn't seem much like ballet at moments, but there are interesting ways, if you're looking, um, in which Arthur is actually playing with the form itself. Notice, for example, how the two main women are wearing point shoes and none of the other dancers are. That sets them apart from the masses in much the way that a big 19th century classical ballet differentiated its dancers through footwear and technique. And notice, too, how we move from big corps de ballet work to smaller vignettes and solos and pas de deux. That structure also resembles classical ballet, but completely transformed. And to really push this a bit, you might even see this ballet as telling the story of the fisherman whose solos open and close the piece. If so, it might become the story of a singular human man who has somehow wandered into a supernatural realm and yet must leave it at the end. That's the story in some ways of the 19th century's iconic ballets, Giselle, Swan Lake, Labiadere. And that is program six, Space Between. In addition to these podcasts, please check out our Meet the Artist podcasts as well. We have interviews with many of our artists and repetitors um, talking about what they do to make these ballets uh, happen on stage. And please do consider subscribing to our podcasts in your favorite podcast app. Um, if you do, you will get our episodes downloaded just as soon as they're posted. In addition, don't hesitate to reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at SF Ballet. Um, and please do leave us a rating or review in the iTunes store. That really helps us reach new and bigger audiences. Thank you so much for listening and see you at the Opera House.